Welcome to the Blueprint for Better Business podcast, hosted by me, Charles Wookie. 11 years ago, I co-founded the charity, A Blueprint for Better Business, with the aim of helping create a better society through better business. I ran it for 10 years, working mostly with leaders of large companies who, for their own reasons, have sought to transform their businesses to become purpose-led. In this series, we're speaking to some of these leaders and change makers and explore the realities of creating purpose-led businesses. This is always both a personal and organizational challenge. So the conversations explore both the personal motivation of these leaders, as well as what they've done and learned in their leadership roles. In different ways, they're all pioneers of a way of thinking and acting, which releases the latent potential of people and puts business at the service of creating a better world. But the stories are always personal and different. My successor, Sarah Gillard, and I have found them all inspiring, and we hope you do too. If you enjoy this podcast, please take the time to leave a review. It helps others to find it. Thank you. Today, I'm speaking to Mark Kutifani, an Australian business leader who became CEO of Anglo-American, the mining company, and held that post for nine years until May 2022. The reason I wanted to talk to Mark was because he has led that company through an extraordinary journey over the last nine years, including making a commitment in 2017 that the company should become a purpose-led business. So joining me today is Mark Kutifani, who stepped down as the chief executive of Anglo-American earlier this year, having spent nine years in that role. Mark, thank you so much for giving your time to chat about purpose and your career in Anglo-American. So I'd like to start by asking what influenced most your choice of career? Why did you do what you did? Well, firstly, as an 18-year-old, the things that were most important for me at the time were uh, was interest and having a sense that the role or the, the, the job you picked or the career you chose uh, left open lots of possibilities. And uh, I remember in the interview when I was being asked about mining uh, or I asked the question, where do the roles go and what can you end up doing? And um, what they were able to show is you could literally decide on almost any aspect of um, career, you could make that choice in mining. So people, technical, um, it was interesting in terms of um, being involved with the natural sciences, and you could literally choose a career path inside that industry. So that was most interesting. Uh, people laugh when I also tell them that um, I, I was also able to do mining at the local university. That meant I could stay in Wollongong, I could keep surfing, I had earned some money, and my girlfriend at the time was happy to see me stay in town. So all of those factors weighed up <laughs> in terms of career choice. <laughs> That's an 18-year-old. Okay. And then so you start off then as a mining engineer locally. And then what happens? Where did you go next? Well, I started off in mining. And as I said, what did interest me was the fact you could almost choose any pathway, people related, technical, uh, could be financed. And I did my university part-time. I worked underground as a miner, literally, in production and worked through all of the functions. And then 
got my what they call statutory tickets, which meant I could run the operations uh, because these tickets you needed to show that you could you understood the process, you could do it safely, right, and um, you could be trusted with the safety of people. And I worked for a few years, worked my way through various levels of the organisation, ended up as the general manager of their local operations, did fairly well, but had a difference of view with a few of the people I worked with on people. I've always had a commitment or a view on how people should be treated. Yeah. I don't think anybody's worth more than anyone else. We all bring something different to the organisation. I think at the end of the day, if if any one of us doesn't do our work, then the whole process breaks down. And therefore, when you talk about the value of people, I think we're all valuable. Mm. And that uh, whilst we have different roles and the market will pay you differently from the roles you undertake, uh, the true worth of any individual is no different. And um, right. reconciling that principle around people and the focus in the business should always be around people has been something that's been near and dear to me. And I was given the opportunity to go and work in the desert in a gold company, which I thought was really interesting. So I took that. And ever since then, it's been about doing stuff, learning and and seeing a new opportunity and taking those opportunities. So that's how the career has developed over many years. And if you were to look back then at that, what would you say gave you most joy and fulfilment at work? Making a difference, uh, delivering Mm on what you set out to do, being part of the team, yeah. seeing people take pride in doing what they do, being part of the team, mm-hmm. all of those things are, I think, very important. I, I'm a social being and so my energy comes from people that I work with and uh, being able to provide and and provide leadership in a way that allows people to to or for them to achieve their own personal objectives is something that I I find uh, most satisfying and I've I've probably over the years become more and more motivated by uh, those types of things than I have been it's not about the money it's about what you do and working with people and helping people achieve what they want to achieve I think that's really important and making right. a contribution to society and that's become more and more important to me as I've grown older, seven kids, understanding that our job is try and leave uh, the world a better place than the one we found. I'm not sure we're doing a terribly good job of that, by the way. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for sharing that. So just let's move now to just have a bit of a think about Anglo-American. So we first got to know each other, I think, well, in the context of, of the Global Foundation and then other work that you were involved with, to do with the faith communities, actually, a series of engagements that you had then as a, as a CEO, a little bit unusually at that time. And then when you wanted to also to revisit the purpose of Anglo-American, I think really in the context of the company being 100 years old in 2017, 2016, 2017. So let's start there, shall we? What, so why did you do that? What was it that prompted you to think about the purpose of the company at that point? Here you've got a highly successful sector leader that's you know, mining is a cyclical industry that had the difficulties that other mining companies had had in that time. So what was the thought process that prompted you to to look at this? One thing that's been said to me by people that I've worked with is I tend to be a fixer and I've tended to take on over the years the tough projects, whether it's the 
super pit in the middle of the Australian uh, West Australian desert or um, South Africa and Anglo Gold Shanty, the world's worst hedge book at the time. And Anglo American was seen as a rather challenging role uh, back in 2013. In fact, most people said it's the job you wouldn't want in the mining industry because people said it couldn't be fixed. And so when you talk about purpose, you have to have a look at the starting context. Yeah. And we, we had major problems, lots of debt. We weren't competitive and we had some major restructuring to do. So in that first couple of years, we had to rebuild the company or basically strip it back and rebuild it. And we had 68 assets, only half of which were really ever going to be value contributors. So we had to do a lot of change to the portfolio, had to make some tough decisions, sold some assets, closed, restructured. And we went from 160,000 employees to 90,000 employees. So that's a pretty big change, and pretty drastic. And um, at the same time, those assets that we saw had long-term potential. We did a lot of work, introduced new processes and approaches. And so whilst we halved the amount of assets, we actually made significant improvements in those assets we kept. So after all of the changes we made over a couple of years, we went from 160,000, 90,000 or half the assets, we actually were producing more product after two and a half years and our costs were down about 30%. In real terms, we were over 40% cost reduction. So massive change. In that whole process, I didn't believe it would have been constructive to bring people together and talk about values and visions. At the end of the day, when people are worried about their jobs and you're doing the tough moves and making big changes. People won't focus on what we can do as a team. So we made a decision to do what had to be done and we used or we talked about a burning platform. And the burning platform was Mm. there would be no business at all if we didn't make the hard calls. And in many ways I think people were thankful that they knew things had to be changed, they knew big steps had to be taken and as long as we were transparent in the conversations, they were generally pretty constructive conversations. At the end and when we'd come through the big changes, we paused, we talked about where we'd come from, and I'd always had the view that you couldn't really use a burning platform to build an organisation for the long term. You could use a burning platform to do the hard things that had to be done because people had to understand why you were doing it. That worked. Yeah. And then we talked about how do we create a burning ambition. Right. And that is what could this organisation now look like and the odds are that most people who were there in that conversation would be part of that future. And that's when we started to talk about purpose and all of the things that we needed to address to bring the organisation together, bring it together as a team and, and do something quite special. And so it took us about 18 months to define the seven words, and that was reimagine mining to improve people's lives. And the the fact that we went through 18 months, we consulted literally 100,000 people, which included contractors and stakeholders on top of the employees as well, and we landed on seven words. And the, the last minute, you were there actually when we 
had the discussions or we went through the discussions. We yep. had the vote of the top 150 or the most senior 150 uh, people in the organisation. I think we got about a 75 80% vote in favour. And it was quite interesting. Those that were clearly had a different view on the wording, when we aligned on those words to a person, they aligned on those words and committed to the words, even if they weren't the words that they would have preferred us to use. And so I think the commitment to those words and what it meant and the time we took to discuss what that would mean was the most important part of the process, not the words themselves. It was the the process we went yeah. through, the engagement and the commitment and the, and the way people work together as a team. And then we went back through and reviewed values. What do our values look like? The behaviours that we needed to demonstrate and, and model for the organisation as the leaders, that all became part of a much broader conversation. And then it was a conversation around what have we got to do at each asset to deliver against that purpose. And so it had become, a, the purpose became a conversation about not only what we would do, but who we would be in delivering what we had to deliver. And I think that was really important. And uh, that focus on safety, environment, social performance, the things that we contribute to society above and beyond the products that we produce became just as important to us as the relationship we had with our customers and and uh, about the products we produced. And so that conversation was absolutely critical and, and you know, turnover dropped. It was a different type of organisation. It took about three years to, to move from a burning platform, the really tough stuff we had to do, to an organisation that was building and doing something very different. Our innovation work, the technical work that Tony and the team had done on renewables, the new truck, the hydrogen truck, the first hydrogen truck, people became really proud of those types of things that we were doing in pursuit of the objectives we were trying to achieve for the organisation. Right, right. So the process by which you arrived collectively at the purpose statement was itself a galvanizing and energizing one within the organization and i heard you say too that that this is kind of also unified people around a shared ambition so you've got the words and you define those in 2017 you stepped down in may this year what what are the things that you're most proud of that you think galvanizing the organization around this shared purpose allowed you to deliver in that period the last few years of your tenure as CEO? I think if I talk about performance, the restructuring of the business through 13, 14, 15 shifted and really improved our competitive position. So even though it was tough, I think people were surprised how well we did and what we achieved through that first process. And then and those conversations were very much about what we had to look like as an organisation. Safety was central to the change process as well, and we introduced a whole new range of operating processes. So people went in there and committed to put those processes in place, and in many cases not quite sure whether they'd be successful, but as we had successes and we celebrated those successes, I think the confidence of people in the organisation improved so that As we talked about the ambition, as we improved our results, our competitive position improved and 
over the next three or four years, we outperformed all of our major competitors in terms of returns. But safety, significant improvements in safety, significant improvements in our environmental performance, and then the social performance and, and the conversations around how we would interact differently with communities were really important. But then it was tested with COVID. It was tested, you know, would we stop the operation if safety was the issue? And, and we demonstrated that we would back the words with actions. And again, I think it took probably three to five years for people to be comfortable that we would behave consistent with the purpose that we defined for the organisation. So it's not simply about the words. If those words don't guide the actions and you're not tested against the actions and seen to be behaving consistent with the purpose, then it won't get you anywhere. And I think the fact that we were behaving consistent with what the, the purpose demanded was what really, I think, won the organisation. If you look at some of the, um, in the UK, what is it, Glasshouse, uh, uh, the the platform? The, the, the platform for rating employers, yeah. Yeah, yeah the Anglo was rated very highly and the leadership okay. was rated very highly on those platforms. And for us, those sorts of things were, provided us with feedback that, Whatever yeah, we yeah. were doing seemed to be landing pretty well. And basically it was about listening to people, giving them a mm. voice, and for them seeing what difference it created in our behaviours and through COVID and through other things that we had to confront, I think we operated and behaved consistent with our purpose. And I think that was the thing people needed to see. And I'd love to come back a little bit to to get you to talk a bit more about what you did during COVID, because I just think it's just such an amazing story. But before we do that, just on this shift to becoming a purpose-led business, one of the things with a very large company that I imagine would be an issue and would, would have been an issue for, for, for you is the shift of thinking from basically we're here to maximise profits for shareholders to we're here to benefit society through the goods and services we provide and the communities that we operate in, as you've been describing. How did you persuade your board to go along with that kind of shift? I mean, did did you use the language we're still here to maximise profits? Given that mining is such a cyclical business anyway, I remember you know we've spoken about over the cycle and what you're looking for over the cycle. But there is something about persuading boards that actually long-term value creation viewed in this way is not inconsistent with delivering sustainable returns. And in fact, you've already described how actually you did better. But was that a challenge to get the board to think differently about what they should be assessing the business against? Um, It wasn't as challenging as some people may think in that I think the board members under Sir John and under Stuart have been very much values driven. And so the process we went through to select board members was there was always a a values-based conversation. So I think that was helpful and they were very supportive. But I, the, the way I think we articulated things helped us in those conversations. And it was around, you might call it stakeholder mapping. So yep. understanding who your audiences were. And so for shareholders, we define what a minimum return needed to be for a shareholder to want to invest in Anglo. So we understood that shareholders want to see, in our case, and this is how we defined it, 
and we looked at capital allocation, the things you need to drive returns. But so we looked at our earnings, 40% dividend, how much free cash flow we had to generate to deliver return, 15% return on capital employed for us was what we saw as a threshold return that had to be achieved on capital. And so we define or we play back to shareholders what would a, an appropriate dividend look like? What should we be reinvesting in the business to improve and grow the business and looking to achieve at least at least a 10% total shareholder return? Our target total shareholder return being 15%. And that for us was the minimum return. We then looked at employees and said, okay, what's an employee looking to have or what are they looking to get out of the relationship? And yes, people want to be paid fairly for the work they do. So that's a starting point. But it's also about personal satisfaction, personal development. How do we help them become the people they want to become? That's an Mm. important piece. And third, being part of a team that works together. So the work environment's really important. So diversity, inclusion, all of those things that really support a constructive workplace became really important issues for us. So understanding what we needed to do to create a workspace that that people wanted to be involved in. Third, local communities. And, And people say, well, what about customers? And I said, in actual fact, if you look at what we do in our industry, we impact local communities, you know, whilst I'm a, an engineer and I can see the beauty of a hole in the ground if it's engineered well, uh, unfortunately not too many people share my view or my sense of uh, what beauty is. And so we have to make sure that local communities are getting more out of what we do than mm. noise, dust and a big hole. And so understanding how to be part of the community, understand how to be a community member, understanding how to make a contribution to the community for the long term is really important. And you don't have a business in mining if you don't have the right relationship with local communities. And that's how some of the faith-based work also became quite important because if you're in Africa, there's no government infrastructure. The most important social infrastructure in many of these communities, the local churches. And it could be Muslim, it could be Catholic, it could be Anglican, it could be Jewish, it could be anything. It really is being respectful of their values and beliefs that really does matter. And it's an extension of the employee conversation about how do you bring everyone together and make it a positive experience. And in our case, when I talk to shareholders, I make a simple point. If you don't have a good relationship with your local community, you can probably add 20 to 30% of your costs And by the way, if you really do it badly, you don't have a business. And so that sustainability conversation started to be understood by our shareholders because we did a lot better job explaining it. Customers, NGOs, when I talk about a whole range of business and social stakeholders, it's understanding how you relate to and connect with the whole world. And as I said to the board, any one of those stakeholders can make or break the organisation and it's really making sure that you're addressing everyone in that mix so that they're supportive of you delivering long-term outcomes. And in the mining industry, it's critical for your survival and it's certainly critical 
for you to be successful the long term. In the end, if people don't trust us, we don't get access to ground. We don't get access to resources. We don't have a future. So it took yeah. a little bit of work to do, but how do we connect with each of our key stakeholders in a way that's meaningful and makes a difference has been really important in terms of our survival. So, and I remember when we first met, you were saying that you were getting some kind of queries from colleagues back at base for spending all this time out talking to faith communities and these other communities and making all these relationships. But I'm, I remember being very struck at that meeting in 2017 by the sense that the organisation seemed really to want to create value for the communities it operated in and move away from this mining is simply value extraction. Yeah. Partly, as you say, for the reason that, well, you won't be there if people think they're just being exploited. But actually, it wasn't just that. There seemed to be a genuine desire to think about what is in the best interest of the communities as well and ask the question, what needs to be true for people to have been glad we were here 60 years time when the mine closes? Is that right? Was that a shift or am I looking at you from rose-tinted spectacle? It was a big shift and people weren't able to join. Some people struggled to join the dots between faith-based communities, academic institutions, a whole range of social institutions that we need to connect with to build those relationships. And as I said to some shareholders who said, why are you doing this stuff? And I said, well, in our case, our right to be there is very much a function of the local communities or it can be in relation to NGOs on particular issues. And as the mining industry, we're particularly exposed to those sorts of public opinions and we have to do a lot better job. A lot of people don't understand that if it's not grown, it's mined. Now, the ancient Greeks understood it, earth, wind, fire, they understood earth, minerals, actually supports all the things that you use, buildings, you use our materials for transport, for energy, for mm. everything. You know, you need the materials. And we, we haven't done a very good job in explaining that to communities or the population at large. But as we've improved our communication, as we've made those connections, we've had support for our activities. And I use a very simple example. When I started back in 13, Anglo-American had a pretty tough relationship with our most important jurisdiction being South Africa because we'd, we'd relocated the centre from South Africa to, to London and we couldn't move cash in and out of South Africa to invest in other operations around the world. And, and whilst we brought cash in, very difficult to get cash out. And after about seven years and rebuilding relationships and building trust, we now can move cash to any country to invest because I think of the trust we built with the government, with the, the local communities. Mm. And as I said to them, the more we can move cash in and out, the more confident the board, the shareholders will be investing in the country because there's a good chance we'll get out. And that, that requires trust. And that change yeah. of policy from the government as a consequence of the trust we'd built, the relationship we had with local communities, they're all connected and made a yeah. big difference. And when I talk about what's that worth, we used to trade at a 40% discount to our major competitors, BHP, Rio, that operated generally in developed countries. And most of our operations are in developing countries and there's a lot more policy uncertainty. 
Well, we've been able to improve policy uncertainty in those countries because of the approach we've taken. And as a consequence, that discount went to a 10% premium in April this year, which was towards the end of my tenure. That's very striking. And that reflects, I think, the whole approach that, yeah. that, that we had their confidence. And it is worth something. And you do see it in the share price. And it's material. Yeah. Well, and, and the way I think a, a number of people, uh, you, you were kind enough to share uh, with us a blueprint, your plan. But the way you approached COVID, and particularly in South Africa, when that happened, would it be interesting if you just say a word about that? Because you know, there you are as a company that has huge footprint, logistics ability in a country. And you made this very bold proposal to the South African government. Just explain a bit, would you, about what exactly you did and why you did it and how that reflected your purpose? Yeah. Firstly, we were in different conversations with various governments. And it was really clear that the governments didn't know how to react. And we had a working session of the executive. And we talked about um, how things had to keep going. And I had one conversation with the minister. And the minister said, we're shutting the operations. We've got everything shut. And we're going to have everybody go back to their local communities. And I said to him, okay, understand that, but can I ask you a few questions? And, and I said, one, are we going to keep supplying water? Because in many cases, we supply essential services to the local communities. I said, what about water? Can we keep the water going? I said, oh, yes, of course, we need to provide water. I said, okay, what about the power stations? Can we keep the energy, the power going to all the communities? Oh, yes, of course, we need energy. And I said, well, don't forget, most of our communities don't have the big uh, grocery stores on the corner, uh, but even they will require food to be topped up because people still got to eat and have all the things they need. He said, oh, of course we'll have to have groceries and food. And I said, well, don't forget that the farmers need chemicals or we don't have food for next year, so we're going to keep that transport. And about halfway through, he laughed and he said, okay, I get your point. And as we chatted, I, I, I made reference to the Monty Python conversation about what have the Romans ever done for us? And, <laughs> and he laughed. And I said, look, I'm not having a shot. I said, but. We actually, you can only shut down, you know, most of these activities for three days because people run out of food. And in many African communities, they don't have refrigerators. So I said, you can't shut down the country because I said, people won't have food. They have no cash. They can't. So it was really interesting how we had some really tough debates in the first three days. And what I said was what I commit and what we commit as a team is that it won't be about the work. I said, I'll leave the place shut for the next three weeks if I have to. It'll be about working with the communities and helping the communities keep safe. Because in many cases, we had medical facilities, we had infrastructure. And so we made a commitment to work with our communities because I said, you can't keep people at the mine safe and not keep the community safe because people move in and out of the yeah. community. So we said we would be part of the community. We would provide everything we needed to provide to the community to keep the community safe. And I did a paper, uh, and when I had that conversation with the minister, I sat up for about three hours writing a paper for Anglo on 
how our process will be about the communities. And so we, we bought 45 PCR units, which are those testing units. We had them distributed around the globe in various parts of the globe, and they were community-based PCR units because we felt testing and making sure people understood their status was the key to protecting. So we were, we were ready to test. In fact, we had PCR units ready to use in North Yorkshire, and we weren't allowed to use it because nobody else in Britain had access to the facilities that we had, and we had them in South Africa, we had them in Peru, we had them in Botswana, we had them in Namibia because we got out and said, well, here are the things we're going to have to do to keep the community safe. And that note went to everybody, so we were really clear with the general managers, it's about your role in the community and being a community member and if we make sure we get those connections right, keep the community safe, then we'll worry about any of the specific issues we have to deal with uh, in the operations. It's interesting, within a week, right across our global operations, ministers were telling us to start the operations up. Mm. Uh, If I'd have gone there and argued to start the operations and not said a thing about the community, we would have been arguing for a month. But it was was amazing how we engage in a very different way and that triggered a, a whole range of different conversations, which ended up helping us as a business. But you did it because, and the first page of that note, which I read carefully when you when you sent it to us, talks about your purpose as being, you know, it's the purpose of the of Anglo American that is leading me to suggest we act in this way. So it was a, it wasn't. This isn't the way to keep the minds open. This is this is how we should act to benefit and support the communities on which we depend. Well, it was interesting. The note that we did and circulated to everybody actually got into the hands of the ministers. And they said, if this is what you mean, and they, and they said, we know you've circulated this amongst your staff, then we're in a different conversation. This is a partnership. We agree. And South Africa was really interesting because we ended up, business ended up forming a partnership with the government and we worked it through. And, and I remember yeah. back in the UK saying that I don't think the government is using business to help mm. in, in terms of the, the whole response. And, I mean, they did some fantastic work, to be fair, the NHS and everyone. But I don't think we use business as well as we could have yeah. in the UK. But in, in those mining jurisdictions, we were, we're much more important in terms of infrastructure. I think we played a much more um, important role. No, well, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing that. It's, a, it's an amazing story. So, Mark, you must get this kind of question a lot, but I think people listening to this will be saying, well, okay, so Anglo-American sits there, it makes a lot of money out of mining things that are not renewable and depleting the planet of one-off resources, and surely we're going to run out of these soon. And how does a company like Anglo-American think about a long-term sustainable future for precious metals and for a whole bunch of things that you're mining and making money out of mining, which are going to run out? So how do you think about that? Well, first first point I would make, since recorded history, the world has been mining because we need the minerals to help us produce or build. Yep. I explained the point. The agriculture sector uses 40% of the available land to produce food. Now, the products of mining, including fertilisers and, and mechanised agricultural methods rely on our products and it's estimated that we help double agricultural productivity across the globe. Now what people don't recognize 
is the active mining areas across the world are less than a half percent of the surface of land. And so mm. we're still relatively small users of land relative to agriculture sector, for example. But we also use our products to build. So we support urbanisation, we support transport, we support every industry, every major industry. Sure. Yeah. And as we've gone from you know, probably 100 million people to 8 billion, the pressure to produce more minerals product obviously increases, particularly as all our standard of living increases. So the importance of recycling yes. and being a lot smarter in the way we use the products we produce becomes more important. So as Anglo, in 2013, we described ourselves as a mining company, and I was always worried because it sort of conjures up a thought that, you know, this is a company that digs holes. When yep. BMW was talking to us about maybe supplying a whole range of things, they said, look, you guys produce 18 metals and minerals that we use. Could you help us with provenance, making sure that, that people understand where all these products have come from and slavery is not involved, um, ethical business practices, all those sort of things. So provenance, we call that. And we started to talk about ourselves as a metals and minerals supplier so talking about our role in society not simply about what we do but our role in a much broader sense so we make everything possible in terms of the materials and the raw materials that we provide and in the last two or three years and I talk about the the minerals industry we're a material solutions company is what we landed on as Anglo and that our participation, our role in the circular economy is going to be just as critical. And in fact, that's how we should be thinking about how we supply the world in the long term. It's a bit like the um, stagecoach company that went out of business, even though they were making the best stagecoaches in the world, what they didn't recognise or think about that they're actually part of the transportation industry. Yes. And uh, there's that famous photo in New York about 1900 where it's horses and and carriages, and about 15 years later, it's all motor vehicles. And so we're a material solutions company. And does the reset of your purpose that you did in 2017, is that robust to that? So reimagining mining for pe to improve people's lives, now the re that reimagination brings you to becoming a material solutions business that does a whole bunch of, we're in the future, we'll be doing a whole bunch of other things than just mining. So material sciences identify better uses for minerals in different applications. So different as, as certain minerals become uh, more scarce, we find different minerals that can deliver the same outcomes or improve the efficiencies as we understand material sciences and we can, we, you know, platinum or palladium can be used as a, as a, um, a part of a, a battery there are new uses. We get a lot smarter in using less material for the same application. So they call that thrifting, so using less, and recycle. So today in the copper industry, 30% of the world's copper is recycled scrap. Palladium, platinum, probably 40 to 50% is recycled. So the more we recycle, the less demand we place on those minerals Given we're, we're, we're supporting 8 billion people, we need to be smart 
in all of those applications, and we need to develop new applications as well. So all of those things come into play uh, in terms of making sure we're sustainable. That's fascinating. Mark, it's so interesting talking about the the, the detail of this. Uh, um, Unfortunately, we're going to have to to close shortly um, this conversation, but there are a couple of things I'd like to ask you just about leadership, really. I mean, the first one is what, what would you say, what's the biggest mistake you've made as a leader and what did you learn from it? Well, I got lots of mistakes I can reflect on. Uh, my wife just walked in the room and she's laughing. <laughs> She'd love to jump into the conversation right now. Um, look, I think the biggest mistake that I made, if I look back in career, is um, some 20 odd years ago in my first CEO role when we made an acquisition that we probably didn't do as good a research on that as we could have. And even in the process, I was a little uncomfortable, but I didn't listen enough to my gut or what my sense was telling me whether it was the right call. We were short on reserves and resources and we were trying to cover a, a hedge book that hadn't been terribly well constructed and we needed more resources and reserves. And so that ended up shifting our perspective. And and the big learning for me is if it doesn't feel right or if you're uncomfortable, then don't do it. Or, Or dig, test, question. But if it doesn't feel right, you really got to make sure you question yourself. And so I've... I've, I've taken that learning to heart and I think I've done a lot better on decisions. I'll make another point. In the Anglo-American case, we had to make a big change in 1314. Yeah. And we did. And then the world changed. China looked like it could be a hard landing. Things were more difficult than we anticipated. Commodity prices dropped. And we had to pivot and go harder in a certain direction because of the uncertainty. And people said, oh, there's a big change. And I don't think it was a big change. It was a bit of a pivot because the world around us changed. So I think, one, trust your gut, and two, don't be scared to adjust or make a change to the direction because as a CEO, you can't afford to wait for all the facts. You have to make decisions as you go based on the facts you have them. If you try and dig too deep and get it right, you're going to miss the opportunity and you're going to be wrong anyway. I think you've got to go with the position and then adjust as you go. And there's a study that was done many years back regarding successful or unsuccessful CEOs. And the difference in success rate in decisions is about 5 or 10%. So they said, okay, successful CEOs generally get about 65% of the decisions right. And they showed that the unsuccessful CEOs got about 55 to 60% right. And I said, gee, there's not a lot of difference there. And they said, you know what? The one fact that we didn't anticipate is successful CEOs make twice as many decisions. And I said, ah, is that correcting the bad ones? And they said, yep, in many (laughs) yes. But they correct quickly or adjust. I like to call it adjusting quickly. Course correction. Change. Yeah. Yeah, and that requires a degree of humility and vulnerability and being willing to do that and not not sort of saying, well, I'm sticking with this decision because I'm the one who made it and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna change. And I think the the issue there around transparency, 
and having your team question and argue, and I mean argue, is really important because it keeps you alert to the possibility that there yeah. are angles there that, that you might not have considered or if you have considered, represent an exposure that you have to watch and adjust to. And I think at Angler we got better over time in that space and got more comfortable with with that type of approach. But, again, I go back to that issue 20 years ago, some big lessons learned, and I've also been lucky to have good chairs and, and good board members and being open and transparent, allowing them to input and, and help us with the decision-making process, I think is very important. Yeah, thank you. Well, I've got two final questions for you, which I'm asking everybody in this series. And the first one, you may perhaps think what you just said just now actually is very helpful as advice. But what advice would you have for an emerging leader who wants to run a purpose-led business? Anything else you'd add to what you said? It's about people. And one thing somebody said to me about, in fact, I had a discussion with someone today who was playing back their views on me over the years, and he said, and, and, and I, I wish I'd have thought of this, but he said, I observe this in you. You've always focused on building good organisations. You've not focused on building your career. And your focus on people and organisations has delivered the outcomes, which has then provided you with career opportunities that you might not have otherwise had. So... I thought that was actually a rather nice reflection that I wish yeah, yeah. that I'd been conscious enough to make that. But he said, and I think it's a very good point, if you focus on people, and you know I've always said I hate someone that says people are our most important resources because in my view it undervalues people and the essence of humanity. People are much more important than the gold we mine or the head frames we use or the vehicles and the resources and the assets we have, people are the business. And when I stand up as a leader and talk about what we're going to do and talk about how we go about our business, it's not the cars or the resources that react, it's the people that actually make a difference. And go back to Henry Ford that said, uh, you can destroy my factories, you can take away all of our resources and assets, but if I've still got the people, I can rebuild the business. But if you take away the people, I've got nothing. Yeah. And so that focus on people for me has been and remains the most important part of the conversation around the organisation. That's great. Thank you. And as you know, I mean, it's absolutely, you know, the blueprints thinking at the heart of what makes a purpose-led business a purpose-led business. So finally, Mark, standing back and looking at the economic system, if you had a magic wand and could change one thing in the economic system to help accelerate the transition the world desperately needs, what would that be? I think there's a paper I've just written on big change and this is the Global Foundation, and uh, I've talked five issues. Am I allowed to mention the five points I've made? (laughs) The last one is the financial one, and I'll tell you. Firstly... How do we help the scientists articulate what the key issues are in language that people can understand? And in climate change, I think that's critical, and we haven't got that right yet, so I think that's number one. Number two is how do we make sure business and the bureaucracies are working together with the frameworks 
and we're working on things together. So that's business and government bureaucracies, and I differentiate politicians. Uh, how do we make sure the policy frameworks are working correctly? That's critical. Third, social institutions, church, organised labour, academic institutions, all of us together need to align on what the critical issues are and move the world together. And so the Pope leading change in terms of the people that he can influence is absolutely critical. So we've got a responsibility to get him on board or academic uh, institutions and other social institutions in terms of driving change. Fourth, politicians, helping them connect the dots. And then the fifth, going to your question, reporting of the metrics that indicate we're heading in the right direction, I think is critical in terms of the financial frameworks. The Bretton Woods system was designed 80 years ago for a different world. And uh, Steve Waywood and the team from Aviva and through the Assisi Accord, we're motivating a conversation with the G20 to look at changing the financial framework and the parameters that businesses and governments report against so that it focuses on climate change and other big-ticket issues that really determine where we're going um, as humanity, I think is absolutely critical. So they're the five points that I think need to be addressed. So you may need quite a big magic wand to deliver all five of those. Well, But that's fantastic, a fantastic system of you. If we're working on those points together, there's a good chance we'll change the world. And as I said, when I went back to Anglo-American, they are the areas that we've worked on in changing our business and changing our environment so that we can be successful. As a chief executive, my job is not only the internal environment with the business, I've also got to do my bit in changing the external environment so the two connect and we can be successful in a world that's heading in a direction that's sustainable as well. Mark, thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating conversation and such a lot of insight and wisdom. I'm very grateful to you. I'm sure people will enjoy listening to this. And I wish you all the best in the next phase of your career. Thanks, Charles. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And I wish you well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Blueprint for Better Business podcast. To find out more about the charity, visit blueprintforbusiness.org or use the link in the show notes. And I can be found at charleswookieassociates.com. You can subscribe to new episodes wherever you get your podcasts and do leave us a review. It helps others to find the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.